Amen. Good morning. You can grab your seat. And uh, I'd encourage you to take up your Bibles and meet me in Isaiah chapter 9, where I will read from verses 6 through 7. Once again, Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. Um, for those of you who may be visiting with us, my name is Mike Kazarowski. I'm the lead pastor here at FAC. Uh, I mean this when I say this, I love to meet new people. Uh, and so if you are a visitor, please help me out by making yourself known after the service. I'm always hanging out up front here and uh, available. And I want you to know that I'm available. And so please uh, don't hesitate to come up and introduce yourself. I'd love to meet you. Um, just a quick reminder, if uh, you hadn't heard what Pastor Scott said earlier today by way of announcement, just a reminder, next Sunday, we're only going to be having one service. It's the Sunday after Christmas, it's the day after Christmas, and that service is going to be the 9.30 service. And so if it's your typical pattern to join us for second service, this service at 11 o'clock, uh, I'd encourage you to come at 9.30 as we're going to only be having one service. If you show up at 11, nobody's going to be here. Uh, so, so you can come, but the doors will probably be locked by that time. Um, and so 9.30 next Sunday. And then also a reminder uh, that this Friday we'll be having two Christmas Eve services, a candlelight service, both 3 o'clock and 5 o'clock. Uh, so please do join us as we celebrate the birth of Jesus and uh, think about any friends and family that you may want to invite as well. Once again, we'll read from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. And Father, we recognize that you are the giver of all good things, all good gifts. That you are the giver of the best gift you could ever give, the coming uh, of your son, Jesus Christ, the uncreated one who was given, who stepped into humanity, who took on flesh so that he could serve as an adequate sacrifice for our sin. For this we praise you, Father, and for this we turn to you. Uh, we turn to you this morning, and we ask that we would understand your word, and that we would know of your greatness. Let us glorify you with our time today. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. During our short time here in the book of Isaiah, the last couple of weeks, uh, we've spoken um, to this great hope that Isaiah writes about. Uh, in Isaiah's time, um, the, the people of Judah, where Isaiah lived, they were in a rather hopeless situation. Uh, Isaiah describes it back in chapter 8 as a thick darkness. By way of reminder, the Assyrian Empire located to the north of Judah was just gobbling up nation after nation. And according to Isaiah's own prophecies, through the word of God, the nation of Judah was next on their hit list. 
And this, there, there is just a looming overcast spirit among the people of Jerusalem, uh, which is the capital city of Judah. Uh, for the original reader, their world, they are just steeped in darkness. Uh, and there is confusion. Um, their whole world is just dark and confusing. But what Isaiah says in chapter 9, uh, what we looked at last week, is that while there is indeed darkness, there is also a great light that pierces the darkness. A light that's so great that darkness can't even hide it, even if it tried. And we spoke last week about how this is language of hope and how those who come under the authority of God's word and regard God as holy are naturally a people of hope, that they see a fuller picture, that they see beyond the gloomy clouds. And last week we walked through hope described. Or in other words, what hope looks like, what type of characteristics it takes on. We also looked at hope explained. Basically, how does this hope happen? And we discovered that this hope happens through liberation. And as we look at the text this week, we come to find in verses 6 through 7, the mode of hope. Or in other words, the channel by which liberation happens, the channel through which God accomplishes his work. And the channel by which we experience liberation is through a person. Now we know sitting here in our context, this person to be none other than Jesus Christ. If you're sitting here today, um, we, we know that this is Jesus that Isaiah is talking about, but the original reader didn't have that full picture. He doesn't know what we know. And so I want to try and take these verses and look at them through the eyes of the original reader. And if you were to let your eyes wander back to verses 4 and 5, what you would see in those verses are, are images of war uh, and images of battle and images of victory in the battle. Right? We see in those verses that the tools of war and bondage are shattered. The yoke, the, the staff, the rod of the oppressor, they've been broken. There's victory like there was victory for the Israelites when they came up against the, the great army of the Midianites, like we, we spoke about last week. The boots of their enemies and the blood-stained garments, their clothes were collected, and they've all been thrown in, in, into the fire. These are all images of victory. These are all images of warfare. And now Isaiah writes that liberation of God's people is through a person. And as an, as an original reader, when you come across verses 4 and 5, you may start to formulate some images in your mind's eye about what this person looks like. You say, he's going to be a warrior. He's going to be fierce. He's going to be intimidating. He's going to walk in the room and you're going to be scared of him. He, this guy's going to have muscles and just be jacked, right? He, he will have muscles on top of muscles, and he will have muscles where you didn't know muscles could exist. This is what he's going to be like. He's going to be a fighter. He's going to be intimidating. You get this picture of a soldier, well-equipped. Yet in a shocking plot twist, after all of these images of war and victory, Isaiah writes to us in verse 6, For to us, a child is born. A baby. Essentially, what Isaiah is saying is that while you feel there's no hope, hope is coming. Liberation occurs through a person, 
but not just any person, a child. Not a warrior, not a soldier, a child. It's said that good things come in small packages. I've heard it put another way from another pastor that oftentimes wonderful things come in surprising packages. The greatest gifts of life that we receive, some of the best gifts that we ever see, come from the most unlikely of places. They don't come wrapped in shiny paper, in pretty, uh, pretty bows. The best gifts in life usually don't come as they are expected. Yet oftentimes in our own finite minds, we, we have our own ideas about what true hope looks like and what deliverance looks like, and what liberation looks like. We say that hope, deliverance, liberation, it has to come to us in a certain way, and it has to come to us in a certain form, and it has to come to us at a certain time, and it has to be in this kind of package, and it needs to be wrapped in this way. It needs to look like this. And God delivers hope to us in the birth of a child in quiet obscurity. And we say, really, God? Like, like, honestly, that's your solution? Your answer to all oppression and all hostility and all of death is this small, harmless baby? Our entire lives are hanging in the balance and you give us a baby? And God says, yes. That's exactly how I will carry out my plan. Now, there's numerous theological reasons why Jesus had to be human, why he had to be born. And the Reader's Digest version is that Jesus had to be human so that he could serve as an adequate sacrifice in God's eyes. I would encourage you to look through the book of Hebrews. Study the entire book of Hebrews because it speaks to great length of both Jesus' divinity and his humanity and the theological purposes behind it and how it all relates. I'd encourage you to go study the book of Hebrews for homework on your own time. Here in Isaiah, the emphasis is not necessarily on the fact that Jesus was human, although he was, and there are great reasons behind it. The emphasis here is that Jesus was a human, but he was a child a baby who was born. And not just that, that, that he was human, but a baby. And beyond the theological purposes of Jesus' humanity, which are there, this verse says something about God. It says something about who God is. The humble circumstances of Jesus coming as an infant reveal the character of God's heart. That God uses the small, God takes the little things and he uses them to display his glory. He uses the weak and he uses the vulnerable things of life to bring about his glorious purposes. And if you've ever had a privilege of holding an infant on the day that they were born, there is just something so profound and magical about holding an infant that is just hours old, you know that there is nothing more vulnerable and weak and helpless and more dependent than a baby. And this is the paradox of how God works. And the reason he works in this fashion is this, being the supreme being, 
God's motivation in all of his work is primarily to bring himself glory. And he's allowed to do that because he is the supreme being. He, he is owed all of the glory because he is the highest being ever to exist, right? And, and so he deserves the glory. He has earned the glory. All the glory belongs to God. And so God will always work in ways that will bring himself more glory. And so he uses the weak and the vulnerable things of life because in the end, that will bring him more glory, because you would think he would use the strong and the expected solution, but that wouldn't bring him as much glory as if he used a baby. Think of how much glory that brings him. God could have sent a warrior to overcome sin and death, but oh, how much glorious that he sent his son as a child. And what the Christmas story actually sets the stage for is a servant king who overcame death, who was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. It sets the stage for victory to be won, not through pride, but through humility. Victory wouldn't be achieved through taking up arms and bearing weapons, but actually laying them down. God's Victory for his people isn't through a fully grown and developed soldier, but through an infant child. And this brings God much glory. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. Not only is Jesus a child who was born, who took on human flesh, but he is also a son. He, he has human ancestry, human parentage, and, uh, but he's also God's son. He is from God. He is God. So not only is Jesus fully human, but he is fully divine. And to us, this son, this God's son is given to us like a gift. Gifts are given to you for your enjoyment, for your satisfaction, for your need. And when someone gives you a gift, True gifts are always given out of the goodness of one's heart, under no obligation. The, 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 the gifts that are given say a lot about the heart of the giver, because the giver is under no obligation to give, nor do they need to give. God did not need to give his son to us. God is self-sufficient. He, he doesn't need us. He doesn't need us physically. He doesn't need us emotionally. He doesn't need us mentally. He doesn't need us spiritually. So he doesn't give us Jesus out of just this particular need to give, yet out of the goodness of his heart, out of his love for us, to us a son is given. Let's look at who this God-man is in more detail. The second part of Verse 6 gives us some clarity to who this child is. It says, Isaiah writes, And the government shall be upon his shoulder. The government shall be upon his shoulder. When, when somebody bears something heavy upon their shoulders, we get the picture of carrying it, right? They're underneath and they're carrying something. They're upholding it. They're bearing it. And this baby who was given to us bears the weight of the government, in other words, he will govern. He will have executive authority. To put it in language that Isaiah uses later on, he will sit on the throne of David. This Jesus is a king. He is a king. 
Now, this concept of kingship, it runs deep throughout all of Scripture. And um, the idea of, of human kingship really begins in 1 Samuel 8, at least in the history of Israel. And that passage, Israel, that passage was written many, many years before Isaiah writes. But in 1 Samuel 8, Israel is finally established as a nation. They've taken the promised land, and to this point, God has been their leader, and God speaks to them, uses prophets to speak on his behalf and to govern. But in 1 Samuel 8, the Israelites go to Samuel, who's the prophet of God, and they look around to all of the other nations that are around them. They're looking at all of their other friends on the block, basically, and they go to the prophet of God, and they say, we want a king. We demand an earthly human king. We want to be like the other nations. We want a king who will fight our battles. And then God rebukes them. And he says, I am your king. I fight your battles on your behalf. And then through Samuel as a mouthpiece, God lists essentially all the bad things that are going to happen if you get a king. But essentially God says, you want a king? If you get a king, he's not going to serve your needs, but rather in his sinfulness, he is going to demand that you serve his needs. He will not serve you. You will serve him, and you're not going to like it. And so God gives them a very valid point, and after this rebuke, the Israelites don't listen, and they say, well, we want a king anyway. Just give us a king so we can be like everybody else. And so God gives them an earthly king and he lets them lie in the bed that they make for themselves. And then that king was replaced by another king and then that king was replaced by another king. And what you have is just this lineage of kings throughout, uh, throughout Israel's history and Judah's history. And you can read all about them in First and Second Kings or First and Second Chronicles. But I want to prepare you that if you read and study about the kings of Israel, you will just find a hot mess of a situation. You've got several kings that did not honor God. You've got the first king. King Saul was not a very good king. He was selfish. He did not honor God. He tried to hoard the throne, actually, when God said he would be replaced on the throne. You've got King Rehoboam, who was extremely harsh to his people, extremely harsh towards the kingdom, which actually resulted in a civil war. We, we spoke a few weeks back about how eventually the kingdom of Israel split into two different kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. King Rehoboam is the reason that the nation had split into two. And then you have King Ahaz, who's on the throne in Jerusalem right now when Isaiah writes, a king who by his very own actions plunged the nation into thick darkness because he made a deal with the Assyrian Empire without trusting God instead of trusting God and his plan backfired. You had all sorts of kings that did not have Israel or Judah's best interests in mind. Now don't get me wrong, not all of the kings of Israel were were evil. Some of them honored God. You had the second king of Israel, David. God said that David was a man after his own heart. David is one of the most important figures in all of Scripture, and believe it or not, his name is mentioned more in the Bible than any other name. A God-honoring man. And then there was David's son, Solomon. 
who loved the Lord like David. At one point, God comes to Solomon and essentially gives him a blank check for a prayer request. He comes to Solomon and God tells Solomon, ask what I shall give you. Basically, Solomon, what would you like as the king for me to give you? And of all the things that Solomon could ask for, he goes back to God and he says, God, give me your wisdom so that I can govern your people well. Give me your wisdom, God, not for selfish motives, but I want to lead your people well. There were good kings of Israel, but they did have a problem in that they were mortal. And because of their mortality, they wouldn't last very long. And they would be replaced a lot of times by the evil and corrupt kings. And so herein lies the problem of kingship throughout Israel's history. There is a kingly dilemma, if you will, in that their kings were evil, were either evil and corrupt, and you didn't want them on the throne, or they honored God, but they were also mortal. And so they would eventually succumb to death. Their reign was temporary. It wouldn't last very long. And so you, you were either stuck with a tyrant of a king or you had a godly king that eventually dies. And neither was an adequate solution, an adequate permanent solution for the Israelites. And so how do we fix this? What is the answer to this predicament? Well, Isaiah here in this passage, in these few verses, gives us the answers. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. He is a king. And then Isaiah goes on to share why Jesus is different from all of these other kings. What sets him apart? Two things. First, he is a good king. He is a perfect king, actually. And Isaiah uses four names to describe his perfect nature and his perfect character. And these natures express the very nature, these names express the very nature of his being. They, they describe who Jesus is and what he has come to do. You could ask the question, Isaiah, what makes this king different from all of the others? What, what are his credentials? And Isaiah tells us, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Let's walk through these together. First, Wonderful Counselor. The adjective for the word wonderful here is used uh, to describe the acts of God that are indescribable. Right? They are so amazing and they are so awe-inspiring. They, they are, I don't even know how to put it, but they are just wonderful. They are filled with wonder. I'm scratching my head here, right? Because of how great and amazing. I can't really describe it. And there's an element of super, of, of the supernatural here. It, it's, it's wonderful. It's so incredible. It's that it's in a category of its own that, that like words, I couldn't even tell you uh, about these acts. I couldn't even tell you about this. I can't even fully understand. You just have to kind of see it to understand what I'm talking about. It's wonderful. And it's paired with the word counselor. It's one name, wonderful counselor. Uh, the, the title counselor, it's not maybe what we would think of today, like a therapist who would sit and listen to your, your, your problems. A counselor in this context is one who leads with wisdom. Right? It's one who kind of knows the right strings to pull and is aware of what moves to make. You could actually think of a counselor in this context like a military advisor. 
one who is a master military strategist, who, who, who knows how to lay out a plan and lead people through a winning strategy. And so to call Jesus a wonderful counselor, he is wonderful counselor, is to say that he has just this supernatural wisdom, a wisdom that could only be the wisdom of God. Catch the distinction there. This is a divine title. This is a divine name. This isn't a wisdom that he got from God. This is a wisdom that he has because he is God. Solomon received wisdom from God. Jesus was God and had the wisdom to begin with. Wonderful counselor. Jesus is the master strategist who guides his people strategically through the perils and pitfalls. His mind is so far beyond and above the hopeless situations of our own making. And in fact, Jesus specializes in the hopeless situations. Wonderful counselor indicates that Jesus is a supernatural source of extraordinary wisdom, which is good news for those who need guidance. He is wonderful counselor, but not only wonderful counselor, he is also mighty God, another divine name. A wonderful counselor, a master strategist, while critical, needs certain people at the helm to execute the plan. Right? You could lay out a brilliant strategy. It could be a perfect strategy. But if you do not have the right people with the right credentials and the right skill set to carry out your plan, your plan is worthless. Your plan need, means nothing. And the picture that we get here with Jesus as mighty God is that of somebody that can execute the plan. He is a strong warrior. Yes, he comes in the form of a human baby, but he fights the oppressor as mighty God with strength and power that only one who is God could have. And Jesus has this, this, this power and this might, and you could not write mighty God about anyone else other than God. This is a divine title. Mighty God indicates power, it's strength. Mighty God indicates that Jesus will be and is divinely strong and powerful, which is good news for those who are weak. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, and everlasting Father. To call Jesus Father is not an indication of his position. If you grew up in the church, if you grew up studying scriptures, you may be familiar with the idea of the Trinity. And it's important to know here that Isaiah is not confusing Jesus uh, with the first person of the Trinity. He, he is not speaking to Jesus as Father from a position standpoint. It's actually more so pointing to Jesus' character. Jesus is fatherly to us. He, he acts and he relates to us like a father to his children. A father is called to protect and support and provide for those entrusted under his care and under his authority. And the beauty of this is this actually changes our relationship with Jesus, what it looks like. Because it's one thing to have a king. 
And a king can function as wonderful counselor and a king can function as mighty God from a distance. But he cannot, however, function as everlasting father from a distance. There has to be a personal relationship here for him to be called everlasting father. A king from any other context sits from his throne and and, and his throne is here. The throne room is here and we are all out here. And there's just this implied separation of some sort between the king and his subjects. And you cannot just waltz into the throne room whenever you want. You cannot approach the king whenever you want. The only way that you'll have an audience with a king is if you are summoned. If the king says, yes, you can come to me. I am calling you to come to me. And that's for him to decide. But we're told here in Isaiah that this king that we anticipate is like a father to us. And that changes things. I've used this illustration before, but it works well here. There is a famous picture that comes straight from the Oval Office itself. You can Google it easily. It's a picture of President John F. Kennedy working at his desk as the president, the resolute desk, and his son, John Jr., who was just a boy at the time, is actually playing underneath the desk. And he's peeking his head out from underneath it with a door that is swung over. To every American that looks at that picture at that time, what they see sitting at that desk is the president of the United States. And and there is a separation. If I were to try and approach the president, I would be apprehended quite quickly and aggressively. I can't approach the president. But to John Jr., who's playing underneath the resolute desk, that man at the desk is not the president of the United States. He is dad. He is my father. Any normal king, we do not dare approach the throne. But since this king is everlasting father, we do hold him in reverence and we do declare his glory and do, we do respect him on the throne. But because this king is everlasting father, we are able to proclaim, as the writers of Hebrews 4.16 says, let us then with confidence draw near the throne of grace. Why? That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus is fatherly to us. He is there to help us in our time of need. And he is saying, come to me. Come to me on your own accord. Come to me as you are, and I will help you in your burdens. I will take your burden upon you. I will carry it on my shoulders. And you can come whenever you want. Come when you are in need. Come when you just want to know my presence as your Father. And it's important to note that this title, Father, is paired with the adjective everlasting which means he will remain fatherly towards us forever. There is a never-ending nature to his care for his people. Many people are so distraught because their biological father is nothing of the sort. Many fathers fail to be fathers due to their absence, both physically and emotionally. 
It's been said that if fatherlessness was a disease, if we qualified it, if we characterized it as a disease, it would actually qualify as a pandemic. If you've had a painful experience with your biological father, please know, as one pastor has said, that Jesus is not a reflection of your earthly father, but he is the perfection of your earthly father. Since we can call Jesus everlasting Father, you don't ever have to be afraid of him leaving or giving up. He will not abandon his post. Everlasting Father indicates that Jesus will care for his people forever, which is good news for those who are alone. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. The word for peace is the Hebrew word shalom. And shalom, it means more than just a lack of conflict. When you, when you hear the word peace, uh, you might think that it means that something is absent, right? That conflict is, is absent. That hostility is absent. Peace means an absence of something. But shalom is deeper than that here. Shalom doesn't mean something is absent. It actually means that something is present, that there's something there. It's a, it's a fullness. It's a completeness. It's a soundness. That's what shalom is. And it, what's just as important as understanding what shalom is, what peace is, it's of equal importance to know who peace is with. Most of us, when we hear that famous Christmas phrase, peace on earth and goodwill toward men, we we assume that it's talking about a horizontal peace, right? That it's a a peace with other people, that it's a peace among nations, even a peace within ourselves. And yes, Jesus will bring internal peace within ourselves, and he will bring internal interpersonal peace with each other, and someday he will bring international peace among the nations. But there is another peace that rises to the top that all of those other pieces rely on, and that is peace with God. It's a a vertical peace. That's what Jesus came to bring, a peace with God. Because having been hostile towards God in our sin, we are an object of his wrath. Whether you want to admit it or not, as long as we are, 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 are sinful, in our sinful state, in our sin nature, we are at war with God. Because God has to wage war on sin. He cannot be around sin. Sin is not of God. And so he has to kill it and all those that stand for it. We are at war. But Jesus, as the Prince of Peace, comes and administers shalom between God and us, a fullness, a soundness, a completeness that you can only find in God. One commentator writes that peace with God is the full realization of his favor towards his people that have turned to him and have turned away from their way of life. Prince of Peace indicates that Jesus will bring a deep fullness and fulfillment. 
which is good news for those who are empty. It's with those four titles that Isaiah assures us that this promised coming king, this, this child is a good king. He's, he's not one of the tyrants. This is a king that has actually come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Isaiah says we can trust this king. We can entrust our lives to him. And as the government is on his shoulders, we must allow him to take over the government of our lives because he's good and he's perfect and he wants what's best for us. And Isaiah goes on to explain that he's not only a good king, but he's also the eternal king. We will enjoy his reign forever. Verse 7, take a look at it. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. As Jesus occupies the throne, he will never vacate it. He will never give it to somebody else. There will never be another king on David's throne because Jesus is eternal. In fact, they tried to kill him and they couldn't. They tried to end his reign. I'm sorry, they, they did kill him. They tried to kill him and they tried to end his reign by nailing him on the cross and he did die, but then he came back to life. Right? If you need any assurance that Jesus' reign is forever, just look to the resurrection because death itself, the final enemy, the primary enemy, could not hold him down. And if that was the only thing that could stop his good and perfect reign, it failed because he is eternal. And the fact that he, his reign is eternal, Isaiah says, it speaks not just to his quantity, uh, but also the quality of his reign. Uh, Isaiah doesn't just communicate the amount of days of his reign, which are endless, but the quality of, of his eternal reign. He, he writes that he will establish his kingdom and uphold it with justice and with righteousness forever. Meaning that Jesus' administration will never be marked or marred by corruption or suspicion or malfeasance. For all of eternity, his reign will have a perfect record, never once giving cause for concern. Not once will his kingship be called into question. He will reign over God's people with a kind of justice and righteousness that no human descendant of David has ever achieved. Jesus is the first heir to the throne whose reign is not tainted by sin. And Jesus is the first heir to the throne whose reign is not temporary. He is a good king. He is an eternal king. That's what makes him different than any other king we've ever seen on the face of the planet. In these verses that we've looked at today, God promises a person that will be unlike any of the leaders before. And it's appropriate to close by looking at the last sentence of verse 7. Let's not overlook this. This is important. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isaiah looks ahead and says that this is all by God's hand. God is the one who accomplishes this. We don't play. We have nothing to do with this. 
Right? This plan is not accomplished because of us and, and what we've done. This is purely by God's hand. The, and the one true God will not fail. He has orchestrated it and he will not fail. The Lord will do this, Isaiah says. That's a bold statement. What confidence that Isaiah has. Once again, a reminder, Isaiah writes within a kingdom that is facing national collapse. There is a pending invasion from a giant nation to the north, an international invasion. Judah was plunged into thick darkness because at the time they had a king named Ahaz. Yet despite the hope and despite the silver lining, Isaiah can boldly proclaim, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It may not look good right now. It may feel bleak, but all of these things, not just what we've discovered today, but everything from really verse 1 of chapter 9 on, the Lord will do this. He will accomplish this. Such confidence, such boldness, such assurance, so much so that you may not have even noticed that the entire poem up until this point is written in past tense. This is the first time in the poem that Isaiah is in his position looking ahead. The rest of it, he's, he's writing as if it already happened. As if to say that the author of all time and the author of all history and the author of all space has written the story. And we may not have experienced the end of the story yet, but it has already been written. And you can take that to the bank because that's not going to change. The end of the story doesn't change. The things that are going to happen are as good as done. And Isaiah, with such confidence, as he patiently awaited for the advent of this glorious coming king, we too, having seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus, patiently wait for the advent of his second coming. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. We can be just as confident as Isaiah that this king who already came once has promised to come again and he will do it. Are you ready for that day? Because this is a day that every single soul will experience. And you will either find yourself in a position of hostility towards the good and eternal king. Or you will be in a position of peace with the good and eternal king. And the coming king will respond accordingly with justice and with righteousness. How can I be at peace with the coming king, you might ask? You turn to him and say, I've been wrong. I have been against you, but you have opened my eyes to see that you are good and that you are eternal. And would you forgive me for walking another direction? And would you help me pursue you and make you Lord and Savior of my life, something you have already accomplished? You've accomplished all the work necessary at the cross and resurrection for you to be reconciled to God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, um, your goodness to us is unfathomable. Even when considering that you didn't have to do any of this, you have. 
You have given us your son. You uh, will ha- had him come. You will have him come again, Lord. This is all part of your plan. And for this, we give you great glory and praise. Would you forgiveness for the many times that we, that we have made you smaller than you are? Thank you for orchestrating this plan. And thank you for loving us in such a way that you have provided us a way out of our predicament in the coming of Jesus, the good and perfect King who will reign forever. Thank you for coming through on your promises. Because looking back on the promises that you've already fulfilled, it helps us look forward to the other promises that have yet to come to fruition. But we consider them as good as done. We give you glory, Lord. And in your holy name I pray. Amen.